because we've made it this far. Um, for those who have been following along with the readings, a huge congratulations. You are very close. It's the last couple of chapters. You will have finished reading through all 66 chapters of Isaiah in 40 days. Um, and even if you haven't been reading along, you've kept up with, I think it's seven sermons covering the span of the whole of Isaiah. So I hope this um, series of Isaiah has been highly rewarding. There's been a lot in there. Um, and so as we close up, we're actually going to spend a little bit of time towards the end uh, thinking about this whole series. But before we get there, let's think about the end of Isaiah. This week, you'll be covering, if you're doing the readings, Isaiah 56 to 66. It's the last bit of this book. And we jump forwards again, just like we did between Isaiah 39 and 40. Between Isaiah 39 and 40, we moved from the threat of invasion for the Judeans to actually being in exile. This time, between Isaiah 55 and 56, we moved from being in exile to actually being returned back to the land of Judea. The thing is, if God's people have been returned back to their land out of exile, haven't they been restored? Isn't that the promise of the hope and restoration that's been in Isaiah this whole time? The cycle we've seen has been judgment, hope, and restoration. So if in Isaiah 56, they're restored, they're back in their land, isn't at the end, what are these last 10 chapters about? Well, it might not be that simple, and it's there, so why don't we take a look at it? In, starting in verse 2, in the second half of verse 2, uh, let me read out some verses. So Isaiah 66, verse 2, in the second half. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations." So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases, displeases me. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet... They will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Verse 14. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. From these verses that we've read, I just read out, I think we see two groups of people, and we can broadly categorize them as the godly and the wicked, 
or you could say God's people and God's enemies. If we take a look back at verses 3 to 5, we get a very interesting description of these wicked. They sacrifice bulls. They offer lambs. They make grain offerings. They burn memorial incense. If you've kept up a little bit with, this, with Isaiah, and if you know about your Old Testament, these are all parts of worshipping God, is what was required of the people in the Old Testament. Yet, with each of these behaviours listed in these verses, God likens them to abominations. Things that were horrible and horrific to the people of God. Take pig's blood, for example. Pigs were unclean animals. The Israelites weren't to touch pigs. And blood was something that they weren't meant to touch. And so to have pig's blood is to be double as dirty. So these acts of worship they're listed, they're likened to an abomination because they were only acts of worship. They were meaningless, empty things done like a performance. The hearts of these people were not worshipping God. We see in verse 4, they delight in abominations and then they've chosen evil in God's sight. They claim that they want God to be glorified in verse 5, but the reality is they delight in their own ways, their evil ways that displease God. And so it's safe to say, I think, that these wicked people, they're not Babylonians or Assyrians. They're actually people from the nation of Israel. And that's what makes this confronting. This group of wicked, they're from a portion of God's very own people. God's own people who he will have rescued from exile. They choose evil in God's eyes. They pretend to worship God. And so it's confronting when we read the description in verses 14 to 16 when the Lord's fury will be shown to them. In fact, they're described as foes, as enemies. He will bring down his anger with fury and rebuke with flames of fire. With fire and his sword, he will execute judgment on these wicked, these enemies, who are actually Israelites. I think this is really significant uh, as the final chapter of Isaiah. This image and this language, it's jarring. As we've come to the end of this book, a cycle of judgment, hope, restoration, to finish with such strong language and against God's own people, it's, there's a reason for this. See, as these exiles have returned to their land, I think they're being prevented with a choice. A choice to be God's people or a choice to be God's enemies. Uh, one thing uh, in this day and age that I really enjoy is consuming media. A lot of TV shows, uh, movies, and in, these, in this sort of media, I really enjoy a particular trope. And that's when the villain or the antagonist mirrors the hero or the protagonist. I enjoy it when, as you follow through a movie, you find out that the villain had a really similar upbringing to the hero that they carried the same values and that they're actually quite similar. It's this really nice reflection. You have the good guy and the bad guy, but you find out that they're not too different. They're quite similar. It's just somewhere along the track, 
the bad guy made a decision. They made a choice. They gave up their values. They decided to take one step over the line. They compromised on what they believed in. They started believing that the ends justify the means. And it's that that took them down a different path, which resulted in them being the bad guy. It was a choice that they made. I really enjoy this trope. I think it's great writing, um, but it's also just fun to be confronted if, oh, this good guy could have been the bad guy too, or this bad guy could have been the good guy. But this choice is what I think of when I think of what we read in Isaiah 66. The people had to choose. As they came back out of exile, out of judgment, who were they going to be? Were they going to be righteous or were they going to be wicked? And part of this choice that's presented is also the outcome for these groups. We read that the wicked would be judged. They'd receive God's fury and anger, his rebuke. But what about the righteous? What would happen to them? Let me read out verse 10 onwards. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you'll be comforted over Jerusalem. Those who are righteous, God's people, those who love Jerusalem, they will greatly rejoice. They will be nursed, satisfied, and provided for. That image of a mother caring for her, her child, providing abundantly, that's what the righteous will receive. The faithful among the exile, the remnant that returns, they will be cared for and provided for. And for those who were able to join us last week, it's what we saw in Isaiah 55. God is the one who provides. So of course, when he restores his people, he will provide for them if they turn to him. And there's two more verses I want to read out, and that's what Shukit read. Sorry, three verses. Verses 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. These last two verses are jarring, but they present the two outcomes of the two groups. The righteous will endure forever with the Lord, but the wicked, they will be destroyed. The image isn't pleasant, it's confronting. Dead bodies, worms that will eat them, fire that burns, loathsome to mankind. It's not pleasant, but that's the reality of God's righteous judgment. And so this whole question is a very fitting end to this book. Who will the Israelites be? Will they be righteous? Will they receive the provision, the joy, the abundance, the, the enduring name of God? Or will they be judged? Will they be loathsome to all mankind? 
This is a question that's not just for the community of Israel, though. It looks different, but it's the same question for us today. We may not be returning from exile, but we still have the choice to live as God's people or to live as his enemies. And as we think about this choice for us, I want to make sure that we don't think about this in isolation, that we don't just think of the outcome, whether we want to be enduring forever or destroyed. I want to make sure that we think about this in the context of the whole of Isaiah. And so, we get to recap the whole book of Isaiah now. So, strap yourselves in. Um, For those who weren't here for the last couple of weeks, you've come on the right week, you get the whole book of Isaiah in one sermon. At the start of Isaiah, we saw that the Judeans, God's people, they weren't living as they should. They weren't keeping the covenant they made with God. They were sinning. They were disobeying. And they even tried to keep up their appearances by worshipping God in action. The result was worship that was empty and unwanted by God. So God sends Isaiah, his messenger, to tell his people that they will be judged, but they should repent. Because there is hope that God will restore them. When God restores them, he will bring a remnant out of his people. And this is where Cliff opened this series with a few challenges. How might we personally, or as a church, be rebelling against God? Where might we be sinning against him? And following from that question is, how do we find our hope in God, though? Next, we went through Isaiah and tried to understand the historical context of this book. We saw many historical and geopolitical events. There's the nation of Assyria from the north. They were the major world power and a huge threat to everyone around them. They were a threat to the northern kingdom of Israel. Alliances were made. Many nations were wiped out. And then the threat became that the Assyrians became a threat to the kingdom of Judah. Lots of terrible things happened. But as God spoke through Isaiah again, we saw that these events weren't just terrifying world events. Rather, God was sovereign in all this. He was acting according to his righteousness and judging sinful nations for their actions. But the big point was that none of these events occurred outside of God's knowledge or will. Rather, he was in control of these events. And so it gave us the opportunity to ask ourselves, when we see the world around us, Do we see that God is in control and that he's sovereign? We're also reminded that sin is severe and it does need to be dealt with. In the midst of all this judgment, we also saw that there was hope. There was hope in God. Uh, One particular way we saw this was this feast that occurred on Zion, a great feast, a feast that all nations and people were invited to. And part of this feast was a celebration of the defeat of death the triumph over sin. This feast, this victory, this defeat of death, it resulted in glorious praise and worship. And so again, we're asked, is our hope in God? Do we trust in him and see the hope that he offers, the feast that he promises on this Zion? Throughout Isaiah, God has continuously reminded his people that he is a promise-keeping God. So when he offers restoration and hope, do we hold on to that? Then, as the threat of Assyria drew closer and closer to the Judeans, we got to see how their king, King Hezekiah, responded. 
Initially, he did the right thing. He turned to God and placed his trust in him. And this resulted in Jerusalem being spared from the Assyrian invasion. Yet, later on, King Hezekiah was foolish. He placed his trust in what he accumulated. He went as far as inviting these Babylonian envoys into Jerusalem and showing off all that he has. He placed his trust in his wealth, his material possession, possessions. And so this is when we're asked another question. Who or what do we trust in? Do we trust in God or do we trust in something else? Something else. And that's where the first half of Isaiah ended. And in a way, this is the same question that's asked in the second half of Isaiah. But the context had shifted. The Judeans were now in exile under Babylonian oppression. And it's at this time that God reminds his people of who he was. He was God alone, the one in control, just as he promised, just as he'd said throughout the first half of Isaiah. So his people were to trust in him, to be comforted, to hold on to him. There was no other like the Lord. And so again, that boils down to, did they trust in him? And to strengthen this idea, God reminded his people that he's greater than anything, greater than these other supposed gods, these false man-made idols. They were nothing in comparison to God who created everything. And of course, God is the one who provides. These reasons came together to encourage the exiles to keep trusting in, keep relying on God as they awaited their deliverance. These are just some of the key ideas that we covered in this series of Isaiah. I'm sure that if you read through Isaiah again, you'd find other key ideas, other things that you could be encouraged by. But I think that's more than enough for us to consider today as we finish Isaiah. As we come to the end, who will you choose to be? Who will you choose to be in light of who God is? Knowing that despite our sin and rebellion, God provides us an answer to sin. Will we choose to be enemies of God and do what is evil in his eyes? Or will we repent and choose to live a life that is pleasing to him? As I was thinking about this, there were a few things that came to mind. I hope I'm not being overly optimistic here, but for some of us, for, well, for most of us, I hope that if, if we come to church and our hearts and our attitudes are not in it, I hope that's not a conscious decision. I doubt many of you wake up in the morning and go, hmm, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to zone out, I'm not going to listen, I'm going to recite words of prayer brainlessly and think about other things the whole time. I hope that if we fall into that space, it's unintentional. That over time, without us realizing, we've become distracted. In, in our lives today, there are so many things that can be distracting, so many things that beg for our immediate attention. Stresses of work, social pressure, study, finances, life directions, all sorts of things. Feeling that pressure isn't wrong in and of itself. But as that distraction happens, it becomes an issue if we try and justify how we act in that. If we start to say, Lord, I've been going to church, I've been praying to you. I'm in the right with you. I've done all the right things. Bless me. You know, God, I've been good. I haven't cut back on my tithing. 
So why haven't you given me the raise at work yet? God, I haven't skipped youth group. I've been coming to Sunday service. So you better give me that grade on the exam. If we bring these attitudes to God, if we do these actions of worship only only in action, if we do it trying to bargain with God, I think that's where we run into an issue. Now, don't hear me say that if your heart's not in it, don't come to church, skip your devotions. That's not what I'm saying. That's taking it too far. Instead, I think it's orienting ourselves in the right way. Not doing things just out of routine or trying to use them as bargaining chips with God. You can start by slowing down and seeing who God is. Even if it's just for 10 minutes, slow down and read the Bible despite your stresses. It's 10 minutes. 10 minutes in your day. Slow down, read the Bible, and pray. And as you read the Bible, ask this question, how does this affect my life? What in God's word is speaking to me? Even just from Isaiah, there's plenty of things that's an encouragement. God is the one and only true God. He is in control. He comforts and he provides for his people. These are things that are found in God's word. And so as you go about your life, 10 minutes just focusing on that goes a long way. And if I can add to that, who are you trusting in? What are you trusted in? When you're stressed by life, do you place your trust in the things you do? If you're struggling with study, if you're stressed about your exams, are you staying up late to 2 a.m., 3 a.m., trying to cram as much study that when you come to church on a Sunday morning, you spend more time dozing off and trying to stay awake than actually worshiping God? I know I've been guilty of that in the past, so no judgment there. But there's a better way. There's something that's better in the long run. It's placing our trust in God. Not trusting in our own efforts, not trusting in our own study, in what we can do, but trusting in who God is. God is the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who created us, who looks after our life. Why not trust in him and make him the priority, put our trust in him over what we do? Another point I want to touch on is the offer of salvation and hope. The offer that God makes. That image of the feast on Zion. It's a feast that reminds us of God's triumph over death and sin. So I want to remind and assure you that God does offer hope and salvation. In particular, for those who might be ashamed or feel overwhelmed by their sin, by what they're struggling with. God offers freedom and deliverance from that sin. It's through his son Jesus, who died on that cross, who we're looking towards next weekend in Easter. When we repent of our sin, when we turn to Jesus, when we turn to God, we have a place on that great feast of Zion. As we've seen over and over in Isaiah, Though God rightly judges sin and brings judgment on the wicked, he also offers salvation. He offers restoration. He offers deliverance for those who return to him. He's not a vindictive, wrathful, and people-smiting God that looks to punish. He desires restored relationship with his people. So no matter what you're going through, how you're feeling, what's weighing you down, 
God extends an offer for salvation, an offer to rejoice in the victory he has over sin. These are just a few ways in which Isaiah and the applications in it speak to us. And so as we finish up Isaiah, as you finish reading the last few chapters for this week, keep these in mind. Keep these in mind as you're faced with a question. Who will you be? What choice will you make? Will you be the people of God who will endure forever? Who will celebrate in his provision that he gives? Or will you be the enemies of God? Those who receive the fury of God and are repaid for the judgment that is deserved. That's the choice that not just the remnant are faced with, but we are faced with today as well. Why don't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are God. As we've gone through the book of Isaiah, we've seen so much about you. The way that you are perfectly righteous, that you don't let sin slide. It's confronting that you judge sin, but at the same time you offer restoration, you offer hope. You offer restoration to the point that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, that we would receive that restoration, that we would be freed from sin. We've seen that you alone are worth trusting in, that you comfort and you look after your people, you provide. There is no one like you. And so in our life today, we can turn to you, we can hold on to who you are, being assured of the promises in your word. Help us as we sit here, as we go out from here, as we read your word, that every day we would make the choice to be your people, that we would live righteously, that we would live lives that please you, that we would do the right thing, that we wouldn't choose what is evil and be wicked, that it's not a, it's not a decision and a choice made out of fear of what's to come, but because we see who you are and we desire it. Lord, help us, give us your spirit to do that. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.